0: This is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. This is part one of CT imaging of the spleen. The spleen is often referred to as the forgotten organ, probably because it's really not necessary for survival, and we're not exactly sure of all the functions of the spleen. And in comparison to other intra-abdominal organs, such as the pancreas, for example, there's really a paucity of scientific investigation involving the spleen, and really relatively little published about the spleen in the radiology literature. But in common practice, splenic lesions are reasonably common in a busy radiology practice. Technical advancements in CT, now we have unprecedented temporal and spatial resolution, so you see unsuspected splenic lesions really every day in CT, and these pose a diagnostic challenge to both the clinicians and the radiologists. Now, occasionally, we'll be specifically asked to image the spleen. In those cases you would probably want to do a dual phase, maybe an arterial and a venous phase, and maybe even a non-contrast, depending on what you're looking for. For routine scanning of the abdomen, usually we're going to have like a 50 to 60 second delayed. So then in those cases, the spleen is pretty homogeneously opacified. But if you're looking for a mass or a splenic artery issue or a bleed, obviously you want earlier phase imaging, like an arterial phase, maybe 30 seconds, and then probably combine it with a later venous phase. We would use really 64 for everything these days, and we would do thin collimation, so we'd use the 0.6 millimeter collimators, and then usually would reconstruct twice. We'd have the thin sections that we would do our 3D imaging on, and then thicker slices, say, three millimeter slices every three millimeters when we're looking at the axial images and the MPRs. And again, if we're specifically asked to image the spleen, then we would have an arterial and a venous phase, and we might even have a non-contrast, depending on the clinical indication. So here's an example, Q1, this is a question. So if you look at this, this is an arterial phase image of the spleen and you can see that it's a very interesting enhancement pattern of the spleen. So my question to you is what's the most likely diagnosis based on that image? Is it lymphoma, trauma, normal, graft versus host disease or pneumocystis infection? Well, hopefully you answered that that was normal enhancement, and here's the same case on the left at about 30 seconds, and then on the right at 60 seconds, and you can see at 60 seconds, the spleen looks homogeneously opacified, but on the early phase image, it has that heterogeneous enhancement pattern, and that is because there's variable circulatory routes through the spleen. Now, you know you have white pulp and red pulp, but when you look at the red pulp, there. are are end vessels, you have small vessels that go down and then turn into venules and veins, but they're also lakes in the red pulp, and these are open areas. And there's a difference between how the contrast enters the red pulp in the lakes or in the end vessels, and that's what gives you that heterogeneous pattern on the arterial phase. So that's normal splenic enhancement. It's a serpentine or cord-like enhancement pattern. You'll see it more pronounced in certain patients, especially with faster injections, patients with splenomegaly, patients with altered hemodynamics of the spleen. So for instance, decreased cardiac output or portal hypertension or splenic vein occlusion will alter the way the blood flows through the spleen and will exaggerate that pattern. But again, if you do delayed scans, it should always be homogeneous. Okay, so here's an example of uh, normal enhancement. Again, compared to the liver, it's very heterogeneous with these linear and segmental areas that are not enhancing early on. And here's the patient on the left is the arterial phase. On the right is the venous phase. And you can see by the venous phase, it looks homogeneous. Here's another very exaggerated early enhancement pattern on the left that becomes homogeneous. Here's another patient with splenomegaly, this is probably a patient with portal hypertension, and you can see these linear low-density areas throughout the spleen on the arterial phase images that become homogeneous on the delayed phase. And here, again, is a very dramatic example of how it can look heterogeneous. You want to be very careful, especially if you're imaging patients for trauma, you don't want to be in the arterial phase because you might overlook a laceration or you might overcall a laceration when you have the stripe-like appearance. Okay, so how big is a normal spleen? Well, it really varies by age, really the size of the patient, and the nutritional status. So there's not really a good rule of thumb. If you look in the literature, some people will calculate a splenic index, which is the width times the thickness times the length, and that should be less than 480. Or some people will calculate a splenic volume, and that should be less than 150. But I think for daily practice, it's nice to use just a number, maybe between 10 and 12 centimeters, Or really below the lower pole of the left kidney. So if the spleen extends below the lower pole of the left kidney, it's probably enlarged. And this was based on an article in 2005. So here's some example. That's a nice normal spleen compared to the liver. Most people I know don't actually measure the spleen routinely. They just kind of eyeball it. And based on the age of the patient, you can kind of get a sense what's too big. Now, there are a lot of causes for splenomegaly, and we're not going to go through all of this. The most common that we see is portal hypertension, but there are other causes. Lymphoma, leukemia can cause enlargement of the spleen. Infections like mononucleosis or CMB. Blood dyscrasias, so ITP, polycythemia vera, etc., can enlarge the spleen. And then there's certain rare storage diseases. And really, you're not going to be able to distinguish between these in most cases without the clinical history. So here's an example of a patient with hepatitis C and splenomegaly, you can see the spleen is large. Another patient, very large spleen, cirrhosis, splenomegaly from portal hypertension. In this case, you can see some varices near the GE junction. This is the same patient a little bit lower down. On the left is the arterial phase. You can see the varices haven't opacified yet, but on the venous phase, you can see near the spleen, all the varices. Another patient, splenomegaly, obviously in this case, it's even larger than the liver for comparison. Same in this patient. You can see that in this case, it's coming down to the lower pole of the left kidney in this image, but it's also much larger than the liver. Okay, here's question two. This is a non-contrast CT through the upper abdomen, and uh, you can see the spleen there, and I want to know what's wrong with the spleen in this case. And remember, this is a non-contrast image. So do you think this is an example of sickle cell disease, normal spleen, histoplasmosis, graft-versus-host disease, or pneumocystis infection? Okay, so hopefully you noticed that the spleen was really dense. So this is a case of sickle cell disease. Um, And so this is a densely calcified small spleen in a patient with sickle cell disease. Now normally, on a non-contrast study, the spleen should measure less than the liver. Okay, now after you give IV contrast, then obviously the spleen is going to vary in density relative to the liver, uh, depending on what phase you're in. So you really want a non-contrast, and the spleen should measure less than the liver. But if the spleen is calcified, especially in a non-contrast, it's high density, that means something's wrong. And again, most of the cases we see are going to be sickle cell disease or thalassemias. In the old days, they used thorotrast, and that would increase the density of the spleen, but all those people are dead by now. And then there are some other conditions. Sometimes treated lymphoma can cause some calcification in the spleen. I've never seen it that densely calcified as the case I've showed you. And hemochromatosis, hemosiderosis can increase the density of the spleen due to the uh, deposition of hemosiderin. And then you can have punctate calcifications from old granulomatous disease. So the case I show you was sickle cell disease. So that's auto-infarction of the spleen. Typically, they're small spleens that are calcified. Here's bone windows. You can see densely calcified spleen. Another patient with sickle cell disease it tends to be a very small shrunken speen, spleen that's densely calcified. And one last patient with sickle cell disease. This one is probably, it maybe wasn't sickle cell, it could be sickle trait, because the spleen isn't really that small yet, but it's densely calcified from multiple infarcts. So granulomatous disease can cause calcification in the spleen, but it won't be a densely calcified spleen. It'll be more punctate calcifications throughout the spleen. And in the United States, it's usually going to be histoplasmosis, right? And that's transmitted through the inhalation of soil infected with bird or bat excrement. And what you're going to see is tiny little calcified dots in the spleen. Usually the liver will be involved, but not always. Then some nodes in the abdomen or, you know, hyalur nodes or mediastinal nodes. So here's a nice example, punctate calcifications in the spleen and the liver. Another non-contrast study, pug calcifications in the spleen. So we report splenic calcifications compatible with old granulomatous disease. And here's something we don't see that commonly anymore, but sometimes in immunocompromised patients, basically the AIDS patients with pneumocystis carinii, they can get calcifications in the spleen usually it's associated with mycobacterium avium intracellulari, uh, but not always and again we don't see that as commonly today with more aggressive treatment of patient with aids and here's an example of a patient with pneumocystis you can see the chest ct there with pneumatoceles from the pneumocystis infection in the lung and then these little tiny calcifications in the spleen related to pneumocystis infection of the spleen some other facts about the normal spleen. Accessory spleens are very, very common. Up to 16% of patients undergoing CT, you can find a little accessory spleen or splenule. And if you think back to your embryology, the spleen forms as little buds, and all the buds coalesce to form the main spleen. Well, sometimes one of those buds won't coalesce, and so it'll be on its own. And that's called a splenule or accessory spleen. They're usually less than two centimeters. They're most common posterior and medial to the spleen, or anterior and lateral to the upper pole of the left kidney. Um, And they enhance, like, the spleen, especially the larger ones. The smaller ones, it may be difficult to um, appreciate that enhancement pattern. This was a nice study in 2004 where they looked at 1,000 patients, and they never found an accessory spleen superior to the main spleen. So if you see a little uh, nodule above the spleen, you have to think twice because splenules usually are not found there. And actually, it's also uncommon to find them posterior and lateral to the spleen. So in that study, they're typically rounded, well-marginated, less than 2 centimeters, and they enhance homogeneously on delayed images. When they're less than 1 centimeters in size, then sometimes their attenuation may be lower than that of the spleen. So then it may be difficult for you to appreciate that it has the same enhancement pattern. So here are a couple examples with the inferior portion of the spleen here. You have a small splenule, about a centimeter. It looks exactly like the spleen. Here's another one near the tail of the pancreas. Here's one that came to us as a left adrenal mass. But if you look carefully, that enhancing lesion is enhancing exactly like the spleen. And when you look at multiplanar reconstruction, especially the image on the left, you can see that that's a splenule and it's distinct from the left adrenal gland. Here's a nice example of an accessory spleen that shows the same enhancement pattern as the bulk of the spleen. And remember, an accessory spleen is still supplied by the splenic artery. Here's another patient with multiple splenules. You can see there, medial to the upper pole of the spleen. And here it is on the venous phase images. Sometimes you can have accessory spleens very close to the pancreatic tail. And in fact, you can have ectopic splenic tissue inside the pancreatic tail. So these can be a challenge to distinguish these from islet cell tumors. And here's an example where they thought it was an islet cell tumor because it really looks like it's inside the pancreas, but it really just was accessory splenic tissue. Okay, here's question number three. So I have an axial and a coronal image of the spleen and the arrow's pointing to the abnormality. So take a good look at that and try to decide what you think that little defect is. So do you think that most likely is a laceration, a healing splenic infarct, a normal cleft, or polysplenia? Okay, that's an example of a normal cleft. And remember, the spleen forms as buds, and the buds coalesce. So sometimes they don't coalesce all the way, and you're left with lobulations or clefts. It's very common. It's from incomplete fusion. You don't want to mistake it for a laceration or an infarct. So that was an example of just normal cleft. Here's another one. They can be pretty deep like that. There's no stranding around it. Even in a trauma patient, this is, you're not going to call this a laceration without any blood or stranding around it. Here's another example of kind of a deep cleft in the spleen, which is a normal variant. And just because we were talking about accessory spleens, I want to clarify something called splenosis. And splenosis is not accessory spleens. Splenosis is heterotopic splenic tissue. It's an acquired condition. It's not from embryology, and it's not congenital. What happens is usually it's after trauma or after a splenectomy. Little bits of splenic tissue break away from the spleen and implant in other places in the abdomen. So unlike a splenule, which maintains its blood supply from the splenic artery, Uh, splenosis, those little bits of splenic tissue just parasitize the blood from whatever's around there. Okay, so it's different. And usually you'll see it near areas that have a good blood supply, like the bowel serosa or the omentum. So this is a patient who had splenectomy with a little bit of splenic tissue left over. And you can see there's a little nodule there up near the clip, and that's splenosis. And here's another patient. You can see a whole bunch of nodules. They're posterior to the uh, stomach on the image on the left, and then really anterior to the transverse colon, the image on your left, those little nodules. You don't wanna mistake them for tumor implants or nodes. There's another patient after splenectomy, after trauma, multiple little um, splenic lesions up there, which are splenosis, so those are heterotopic splenic tissue. And they can be pretty far away from the spleen. The image on the right, you can see that it's um, anterior in the mid-abdomen there, just deep to the rectus muscles. Okay, so we're going to stop there for part one, and when we come back with part two, we'll talk about um, some benign tumors that occur in this book.